Okay, are there any farmers in the room? Anyone from a farming community? Wow, we got a lot of farmers in the room. Uh, man, let me just say, I love you, God bless you, and I'm grateful for your family, but I do not understand you at all. Um, how many city people we got in the room? Let me hear you. <laughs> there you go. That's my people. Uh, here's the thing. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I could never cut it as a farmer. Like, I just could not cut it as a farmer. I'm not made to be a farmer. And let me, let me explain why. There's a few reasons why. Uh, growing up in Colorado, my grandma and my grandpa lived a few hours away, and they, uh, they had a farm, like a very, very successful farm. And every once in a while, my mom would pack us, us kids in the car, and we would drive a few hours to Grand Junction and for a week on the farm. And guys, I love my grandma and grandpa, but I dreaded those trips uh, for a few reasons. Number one. I'm going to be real honest with you guys. Chickens freak me out. They do. I don't, is anybody else willing to admit that chickens freak out just a little bit? Thank you. I feel seen. I, thank you. Uh, chickens freak me out. They're unpredictable. And if you look at their claws, like if you look at a chicken claw, they're like straight up modern day dinosaurs. Okay? Like they, will, they look dangerous and I, I don't know. And so my grandma, every time we were at the farm, I'd be the one in the morning. She'd say, hey, go out to the chicken coop, collect all the eggs. And I was like, please don't do that to me. And, but grandma was like, mm. So, uh, so I had to go every day, go in and pick out these, uh, these eggs and uh, just getting those. I'd just be sitting there like head on a swivel, just waiting for one of those to like peck at me or something. Hate, I hate chickens, okay? They, um, number two, my grandma uh, would have me mow the lawn on the riding lawnmower. And as a 10-year-old, I was like, that's really cool. I get to like hop on the riding lawnmower and mow their yard. But the problem is uh, the farm was really near, uh, near a creek and there were tons of frogs that came out of this creek and would just hop around in their yard. So I'm on this riding lawnmower, like driving around these hot frogs that are like jumping in front of the mower. And as a 10 year old, trying not to like slice and dice and murder these frogs, it's very traumatic, right? And so I would like be driving and doing these weird lines, just trying not to kill any frogs. But every once in a while, one of those poor frogs would end up in the mower, and I'm, I'll spare you the gory details, but I was not about to eat some, some frog legs for dinner. Like, it, it, I hated it. I hated it, guys. Final reason I could never cut it as a farmer, cow births, okay? <laughs> Disgusting, all right? Uh, I will never forget the day my grandpa said, come on, David, uh, mama cow's uh, giving birth, we got to get out there. And I was like, oh, no, please, gosh, no. Like, like I really don't. And he, and, but sure enough, he dragged us out there, and, oh, like there are images that are scarred in my mind that will haunt me until my death, okay? And he's out there, he's so excited about this calf like, like sliding out of this mama cow. And he's like, oh, the miracle of life. And all I'm thinking is like miracle of life, more like horror movie, okay? Like this is not exciting to me. And guys, let me tell you, that day that calf was born, I realized that I was called to ministry because I would rather be up till 2 a.m. eating pancakes with a college student than watch one more slimy calf slide out of a cow, okay? Like that's just reality for me, okay? Um, simply put, just reality, guys, I am not cut out for farming, all right? Uh, we're not talking about farming tonight, but tonight's topic is leadership. And the misunderstood, thank you, the most commonly misunderstood idea around leadership, I think I hear a lot of people say, I'm not cut out for that. 
Like that's someone else's deal and I appreciate that about them, but that's not me. I'm not cut out for it. I don't have that skill set. I don't have the guts for that. Leadership is not something I'm interested in. And, uh, and the reason is I think there's a lot of myths that we all buy into from culture around this idea of leadership. And not only that, but distinctly Christian leadership is very different from worldly secular leadership. So tonight's going to be extremely practical. Um, the first few weeks of this series, we talked about shame and guilt. Uh, my buddy Zach came out last week, talked about law and grace. Did you guys like his message last week? That was good, right? Man, got to get him back. And then we had feast this past weekend, which was awesome. We talked about feasting on the goodness of God and just and really driving into spiritual growth and really heavy abstract concepts. So tonight, I just wanted to say, hey, let's get real practical and concrete and talk about some very, very simple things that we can understand about being a leader in the kingdom of God, regardless of whether you have a title or not, because complexity doesn't always equal extra spiritual, all right? Um, So we're gonna have, we're gonna tackle four myths that I think, I I hear a lot of students like you that you might believe about what leadership is that I just wanna take some time and debunk tonight. So myth number one, leaders have a perfect track record. Leaders have a perfect track record. There's a perception of leadership that includes some level of perfectionism. Like when we look at leaders of big churches, big organizations, we tend to see them as these earthly saints. And we believe these leaders are part of the few who just have it figured out. We don't have it figured out, but they do. And so that's why they're leaders. They're simultaneously the smartest and kindest individuals in the room. And we believe this myth that, that leaders don't fail, they've never failed, and they're somehow immune to failure as well. Myth number two, leaders have to be the most charismatic, personable extroverts in the room. Uh, For some reason, we associate being loud with being influential. But I think you could probably think of some loud people in your life that are not great leaders, right? And we look at introversion, like, like if you're an introvert, like you've got this like disease or something like, and we prop up extroverts to be like the champions of society. But the reality is, guys, when I want advice or wisdom, some of the best leaders I know are the most extreme introverts. And I'm like, man, I want to go to you before I go to the loud person in the room. So, so we, but we believe this idea that leaders are, are these like really personal, loud, extroverted individuals, but it's simply not true. And we're going to come back to that a little bit later. Myth number three, leaders have an impressive resume. Impressive resume. Now, this one's going to cause some mental dissonance for our business students uh, because we're taught our whole life to build the resume, right? To get the job, we got to take that internship, take that job, uh, volunteer in these areas. Some of you seniors, juniors even, like as you're doing, you're building that resume right now so that you look impressive to an organization, And we think being impressive is the key value to being a leader in some organization at some point. But here's the problem, guys. Jesus wasn't impressive. In fact, he was was a a humble carpenter from Galilee. Like, that's not something you throw in your Instagram bio. Uh, But the reality is, guys, Jesus isn't looking for impressive people. He's looking for intentional people who will live their life on purpose. That's what a leader does. And we're going to come back to that later, too. Myth number four. Leaders are bosses and bosses are leaders. How many of you guys have had a bad boss at some point in your life? I think everybody has an example. Okay, I heard a CSF staff person say that. Who was that, Paige? Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk later. Um, 
I don't think you need convincing that uh, just because your boss doesn't make you a great leader, right? Uh, we assume that if someone's put in charge, they've got these leadership qualities, but a lot of times organizations look at, hey, we've got a hole to fill, we've got profit margins, we need innovation. So they take the loudest person in the room, they put them in charge because they're going to get results. But a lot of times, some of the best leaders in organizations are some of the lowest people on the totem pole. And, and people will go to them and go for advice and wisdom and, and figure out well, how do we move forward, but they don't get promoted sometimes. Um, but sometimes the best test to discover if you're a leader is just ask the question, is anybody actually following? Right, like taking uh, commands from a boss is different than going to someone for wisdom and leadership. There's so many myths that we could get into, but tonight we're gonna focus on these and just examine them through the lens of scripture like, and ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about leadership? What is Christian leadership? And hang in there. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you're thinking, well, this has nothing to do with me. I think there's still some principles about tonight that will make you re-examine your life's purpose. Like even if you're going into uh, your next job and you're like, I'm not a Christian, I'm not following Jesus. I think there's something in here for you if you'll just hang in there with us. Um, so we're in John 21. We got this interesting scene at the very end of John's gospel. And at this point, Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the grave, but his disciples, like his closest followers, for whatever reason, have gone back to their old life to fish, right? And most notably among these disciples is this guy, Peter. Now, Peter's an interesting guy to study, right? At one point, Jesus said, Matthew 16, 18, he said, and I tell you, he's talking to Peter, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus saw Peter fishing. He said, you're a leader and I'm going to use you to start my church. Like that's a big calling on this guy's life. So he calls Peter out of this career in fishing and Jesus spends three years with him, discipling him and mentoring him. And Jesus made it abundantly clear that, hey, I'm going to use you in powerful ways. And Peter was kind of confident, but he was a little brash and he didn't always have the greatest judgment. And then when Jesus was being walked uh, to Calvary to die on the cross and everyone was confused about what is happening, Peter found himself in three situations where social circles came around him and said, hey, you're that guy that knows Jesus, right? Like you're that friend of Jesus. You're that follower of Jesus. And Peter said, no, 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 that's not me. That's somebody else. Three times he denies any connection to Jesus. The guy that Jesus said would build his church denied Jesus in his most fateful hour, right? This, you would say this was a failure of nerve. This is not leadership material. He acted cowardly and selfishly. And to make matters worse, Peter even said at the Last Supper that if everyone betrayed Jesus, Peter would be the one that wouldn't. But in that moment, he denied Jesus. So did Peter lie or did he overpromise? Either way, it's not a good look for Peter. So it's not really a surprise to find Peter back in this old life of fishing, right? You have to imagine Peter had all this shame and guilt about what he had done and he didn't know what to do. He's like, well, I denied Jesus so I can't go start his church or do anything. So he just says, I'll just go back to my old life. Have you ever had those like spiritually intense moments or seasons in your life, but then you make one mistake or you do that one thing, you're just like, hmm, all right, I guess, I guess the Christian thing didn't work and you just kind of find yourself in this old lifestyle again. That's where Peter is when Jesus finds him in John 21. But again, Jesus doesn't always see things the way that we see him. So there's an interesting story that happens out, John 21, starting verse one. It says, afterward, 
Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. Simon Peter Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, there's, there's a few things I love about this scene so far. Number one, we see Peter being classic Peter, highly emotional, right? He's either like high highs or low lows. There's no in between for Peter. So when Peter sees, oh my gosh, Jesus is back, he jumps into the water and swims a football field worth of water just to see Jesus. He's caught up in the moment, right? Now, number two, Jesus is sort of playful with the disciples, right? He gives them a hot tip, switch the sides of the boat, catch more fish than you've ever caught. And it's just this sweet and gentle reminder that God actually does work in the little details of our lives sometimes. And number three, the disciples have gone back to their old life because they're worried about their livelihood, right? They're worried about income. Jesus is gone. What do we do now? I guess we go back to fish. Got to make some money. Um, but when they, even, when they get back to the shore, after he, Jesus helps them get more fish, he already has breakfast ready for them. It's like he's saying, will you, will you trust me that I got you? Like, I'll take care of you. Will you trust me to take care of those little details so that you can go do that crazy, intense, amazing mission to love the world and to introduce people to my love? He said, I'll take care of the rest. Now, the text goes on and there's this very intimate conversation between Peter and Jesus that happens starting in verse 15. He said, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is such an interesting interaction. I could never get tired of reading this passage. Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times, as soon, right when Jesus was going to die, is being asked by Jesus three times, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes, yes, I love you, right? And what's Jesus' response to Peter's declaration of love? Is it shaming Peter? Is it, well, then why, why'd you tell people you didn't know me? What's the deal with that? Does Jesus pile on and say, like, how dare you do that? No. He says, all right, Peter, you love me? I believe you. Now go take care of my people. Go serve people. 
Go take care of my sheep. Serve them well. Love my people. Jesus is the chief shepherd deputizing Peter as his representative. See, Jesus is establishing Peter back into leadership, into distinctly Christian leadership, the kind of leadership that doesn't look for a platform and an audience, but the kind of leadership that gets on its hands and knees and takes care of people. If we rewind a little bit days before this, uh, before Jesus was crucified, Jesus got on his hands and knees and washed the disciples' feet. This is an important cultural uh, moment. In John 13, 12 through 15, he says, when we, uh, what Connor read earlier, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus leaves no room for misinterpretation. He says, hey, here's the example. You want to know what leadership is? It's washing someone's feet. So go do that. Go serve people. Get on your hands and knees and serve. Washing someone's feet in this time was a humble act of servitude. In this time, the, the master, the leader would never wash the, the people's feet. They would, they would wash the master's feet. And so Jesus is flipping leadership on its head and channeling his inner Mandalorian says, this is the way. This is it right here. Hands and knees, washing feet. That's leadership. Um, if you were at Feast, I, I got to interview a guy named Alan Briggs and he talked about leadership and hospitality. And um, Alan's been an important mentor in my life. And, and many, many years ago, back in Colorado, um, he invited me on a trip up into uh, the mountains to go on a snowboarding trip with some guys. And at that point, like I had been skiing, but I'd never been snowboarding. And I knew snowboarding was actually like really tricky uh, to pick up on. Does any skiers or snowboarders in the room right now, like, like, you know, like snowboarding is just not something you like just naturally pick up and you're like good at it right away. It is a very humbling experience. And knowing this, I told him, no way, man, I'm not going on the mountain because I I don't want you guys to like be sitting around waiting for me. Like I'd be embarrassed and you guys are all like accomplished snowboarders. Like I'll catch you next time. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, man, I'll hang with you. I'll teach you. And I'll just, you know, do the bunny hills and the greens and all those things to like help you get ready. I was like, man, are you sure? I, I don't know. He's like, yes, I'd love to do that. Like he was willing to serve me in that way and teach me how to snowboard. So we got up on the mountain and he's teaching me little things and it's just super awkward. I'm trying to get on the, 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 the lift to get up to the top of the mountain and I keep falling off and it's super awkward and, and uh, it's just, it's, it's not fun, all right? And we get to the top of the, the mountain and he's showing me a few things about how to turn the back of the snowboard and how to like snow plow at times to slow down, all these things. And guys, it's just hard. Like it's just not natural and I never did anything like skateboarding or anything like that. So it just was not a natural thing for me. So every two seconds I'm falling on my face or falling on my butt or trying to turn and I would clip the back of it and fall down. And I just like was constantly falling and just, man, my muscles hurt in places I didn't even know I had places. Like it was just awful all day long, falling and falling, falling. But the whole time he's like, man, you got this. Come on, get up. You got it, man. Here's a couple things to do. And I'm like, man. And so, so as I'm like falling constantly, like I just can't get why he keeps encouraging me. Like at, at this point, if I was helping someone, I'd probably just be laughing at them. But the whole time he's just like encouraging me, saying, you got this. And so finally, like, like I'm like, man, I just want to like impress him. I just want to like make him like happy that I'm like learning something. So at some point I said, you know what? I'm going to get on this snowboard and I'm just going to go straight down this mountain and I'm not going to fall. I'm just going to stay up no matter how scary it gets. I'm just going to go down and I'm gonna do this, all right? And so just the willpower just fueled me and I got up on that snowboard and I just went straight. 
Okay, I didn't try to turn or carve or snowplow. I was just went straight line down the mountain. Now, um, the funny thing is that the way that gravity works, in case you didn't know, um, is that as you start going down a mountain of snow and ice, the longer you go, the the faster you go down the mountain. And so I'm getting up there and five seconds turns into 10 seconds, turns into 15 seconds, and I'm starting to gain some real speed here. And, uh, and so the fear starts setting in, but at the same time, I'm like, don't fall, don't fall. You got this, don't fall, don't fall. And he's behind me, he's like, yeah, go, you got this. And, and I'm like, okay, and I'm just like going straight down. And then we're getting to the, the, like closer to the bottom of this mountain, and I see these cute little kids with their earmuffs just in their tiny little skis, just like going along, getting excited for their first day of skiing, and I'm coming like a meteor at them. <laughs> And, and I, I have this moment where I'm like, I have no idea how to stop. Like, like I don't know how to stop, and I'm going to go and, like, crush one of these kids on their first day on the mountain. And I'm like, I can't do that. So I just resolve, like, at some point, I have to stop before the end of this. So I just go, all right, man, time to face plant. And so I just turn and go... And I'm just like turning to like this, like this avalanche just going down this mountain uh, to stop before I hit these kids. Um, but the problem was Alan didn't know what I was thinking. He didn't know I was going to intentionally fall to slow myself down. And so he was too close to react to me, to go around me. And so I'm sliding headfirst down the mountain and I look up and I see him coming right behind me and his eyes get real big. My eyes get real big. And in a moment of self-preservation, I just kind of reach my snowboard up to protect from the, the, the impact. And at the same time I do that, he decides he's going to try to jump over me with his snowboard. So my snowboard connects with his snowboard and I just launch him into the air and he does like a full frontal flip and just bam, lands on the mountain. We go tumbling down and like we're just sliding for what seems like forever and we finally stop and I'm like, dude, are you okay? He's like, yeah, are you okay? I'm like, yeah. Woo, we did it! Yes! Nailed it. So good. And we celebrate that moment. Um, but here's the point, guys. He was so patient all day, just saying, you got this. I, and like serving, just like fueled me. It just gave me all the enthusiasm and energy I needed to try harder and actually come, become a good snowboarder. And guess what? I learned how to snowboard because he was so patient and just served me for hours teaching me how to do this. Guys, leadership equals influence through service. He influenced me, but not because he told me what to do. He served me, and he walked with me that day and just did it humbly all stinking day. Let's look back at those four leadership myths I, I talked about earlier. See what we learned. Myth number one, leaders have a perfect track record. If you look at Peter, his track record was anything but perfect. Like, we already know he denied Jesus in his most crucial hour, but he also straight up cut a dude's ear off. When he came to arrest Jesus, pulled his sword out, cut it off in the name of Jesus. And Jesus was like, oh, gosh, Peter. And so did, so the ear back on. I was like, you still don't get it. It's fine. I'll get arrested. You know, like, like he moved on, and Peter was just so brash. Not a perfect track record. Number two, leaders have to be the most charismatic, personable extroverts in the room. Peter was brash and loud, but he wasn't exactly the most personable guy. In fact, in Galatians 2, Paul writes about a time where he had to straight up call Peter out because uh, Peter would be sitting with the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish people who had just been introduced to the Gospels, but if Peter's Jewish friends showed up, like straight up middle school style, he'd get up off the table and go only sit with his Jewish friends, and he would just ignore the Gentiles. And Paul's like, Dude, you're a leader. You can't be doing that, man. Like, what's the deal with this? And so he called Peter out. And this is after this sweet moment on the beach. Like, Peter's still messed up in his leadership. And yet, 
somehow God's grace covered Peter. And God still trusted Peter to start his church. Myth number three, Peter's ha- or leaders have an impressive resume. Guys, Peter didn't come from a wealthy family. He didn't have a formal education. He had nothing on his resume to impress anybody. He was a fisherman. That's it. But remember, Jesus doesn't need impressive people. He needs intentional people. So Peter, in all his faults, was super intentional with how he used his time. Read the book of Acts. Watch Peter walk around. The way that he would see people and just call out for them in the name of Jesus was super intentional. That's why Jesus used him. Myth number four, leaders are bosses and bosses are leaders. Jesus invited Peter to lead by serving his sheep. Jesus didn't offer Peter a job as a boss. He invited him to be a shepherd. And that's what great leaders do. They shepherd and care for the people around them. Great leaders don't look for titles. Great leaders look for feet to wash. Whose feet are you washing right now? How are you serving people around you? How are you serving your roommate? I feel like 75% of my conversations with college students are about tension with roommates. Like, I get that. I had some weird roommates in college. How are you serving your roommate? That's what leaders do. One of my favorite books that I could reread a thousand times is called Spiritual Leadership by a guy named J. Oswald Sanders. And in it, he writes, the spiritual leader will choose the hidden path of sacrificial service and approval of the Lord over the flamboyant self-advertising of the world. Now, he wrote this before social media became a thing and everyone's trying to be a a social media influencer. And he says, hey, we choose the hidden path of sacrificial service and approval of the Lord. Not approval of the world, approval of the Lord, right? Leadership equals influence through service. So if you're here tonight, guys, and you think about leadership the way that I think about farming and you're tempted to think, yo, that's not for me. I'm not a leader. I'm a follower, I want to challenge that and I want to expand your thinking because the reality is Jesus has an incredible plan for your life and a significant purpose for you to change the world. In fact, there are many of you in this room right now that God is going to use and he's going to call you to pastor in some of the greatest churches around the world. Some of you are going to lead companies as CEOs who love Jesus and lead Christ-like. Some of you are going to sit in, in, in boardrooms and use your incredible influence for God's kingdom. Some of you, God's going to call across the world into the mission field to serve in spaces that have never heard the name of Jesus. Some of you guys are going to invent products that help fight poverty in the name of Jesus. Some of you might even call me, come on staff at at CSF and introduce college students to Jesus. And you know what? Some of you won't ever do it because you slept with your girlfriend and you think, I made a mistake, disqualified. I can't lead. Or, hey, everyone knows I used to smoke weed every day. God can't use me. Well, guess what, guys? If God can use a guy like Peter, a brash, selfish, ear-cutting, Jesus-denying, arrogant, overbearing man, I have a feeling he can still use you. If you have breath in your lungs and a love for Jesus in your heart, God wants to use you. You're a leader in the kingdom of God. You don't need a title. You don't need a title. All you need is a heart to serve and a heart to wash some feet. That's leadership in God's kingdom. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus did exactly that. He gave his life on the cross for you and for me so we could find grace and forgiveness. And, and this is an important and, so we could find our purpose in this world to lead at a high level. Frederick Buechner uh, writes this. He said, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So my final challenge tonight is, 
What brings you the deepest joy? And how can you marry it to the world's deepest hunger? Where's there a need, guys? For me personally, you, you may look at me and, and be like, man, he's a, he's a pastor, so he must be extra spiritual, be really close to Jesus 24-7, but it's not true. It's not true. In fact, I don't deserve to be on this stage preaching tonight. I, I made enough mistakes and committed enough sin just in my high school years to last a lifetime. Honestly, I'm embarrassed to think about it. But you know what? At one point, I just, I met God's grace and I believe that God's grace is greater than my failures. So I find myself on a stage like this almost every week telling people that about the love and grace of Jesus so they can experience that freedom and that purpose as well. And that's what brings me deep gladness. And I can tell you confidently, guys, that I feel God's pleasure. I feel God's smile every time I'm able to talk about Jesus to someone like you because I know that God has called me to this place. And when it comes to the world's deepest hunger, man, I love getting to work in a college setting where there are so many students looking for love and purpose in all the wrong places. And I get to be in the middle of that and say, hey, there's an answer to that hunger you feel inside of you and his name is Jesus. And that's where purpose is, that's where purpose happens. That's leadership, that's serving in the kingdom of God. So guys, what makes your heart come alive? What makes your heart beat a little bit faster when you think about God using you. doesn't matter if you became a Christian today. God wants to use you. You don't need to wait for a title to start leading and serving. Get creative. Bring some people around you. Don't let Satan convince you that God could never use someone like you because it's a lie. And we're going to expose that tonight. One final verse for you guys before we continue in worship. Paul mentored a young man around, around your age. His name was Timothy. And he was new to leadership and there were some people in the church questioning whether Timothy could actually be a leader of men and and of women. And and Paul wrote this simple encouragement and some of you guys maybe read this, maybe some of you guys never heard this, but I'm just going to leave this one verse with you tonight. And if you're unsure what to do with your passion life, just do this one thing, 1 Timothy 4.12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. It can be as simple as that, guys. Set an example, lead well, serve selflessly, set a good example, embrace the grace of Jesus, and he'll handle the rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to die on the cross for us. God, I, I, like I said, I have no purpose on the, to be on the stage that there are so many other people that are probably better qualified, have lived a holier life, but... God, you showed me grace, and I'm just um, humbled by that. I didn't deserve that grace, but you gave it to me anyways. And I know that you extend that same grace to every single person in this room. God, you don't want us to be handcuffed and paralyzed by our past mistakes and our guilt and our shame, but you want to release us as leaders in God's kingdom to go serve people, to go wash some feet. Lord, I think about uh, the students we have already who, who... uh, do name tags at the beginning of Synergy or serve food at PSP or, um, uh, or lead freshman groups at Shift. And I just look at these leaders in God's kingdom and say, man, they're making an impact. They're washing feet. God, I, just, I thank you for their example and I pray that you'd bless them for their obedience in God's kingdom to take a few hours out of their week in college to love people. And God, I pray for those who have been on the sidelines wondering if they have anything to offer. Lord, I pray that you encourage them and release them into leadership. And that they wouldn't use their past mistakes as a reason not to, but you'd remind them, Lord, that you redeem their past. You can use their past to help other people. We've got a lot of students at University of Kentucky who don't know Jesus. 
So we need a lot of disciples of Jesus to step up, start leading, and serving those students. God, I know you've got a big plan for CSF. You've got a big mission on, our, on this ministry and a big plan for our seniors who are about to graduate and head off into the business world or to teach or in, uh, wherever they're going, Lord. I pray that you would, you'd remind them. It doesn't matter if they're 22 and new in the workforce. They are a leader in God's kingdom. They've been sent there to serve on purpose. So fuel them, Lord. Fuel them with passion and courage and conversation. Lord, let us be a community that leads at UK, that people are drawn to because that's, that's, the, the, that's an organization that washes feet, that cares for people really well. God, thank you for grace. Thank you for freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.